This is Remote Ruby. Have you any remote idea to the meaning of the word? What up? What's going yeah. on? Poor Jason with his knee recovery, but also the power went out. And then he went to his parents. And then by the time he got there, the power was restored. But his parents' internet went out. Seems like he's having a fun day or a fun week because yeah. other stuff was going on, I guess. But no Jason this week. We've got maybe, would you consider yourself the most boring guest, Matt? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Matt Swanson is here this week. You can fill in for Jason. I'll do my best. We're going to bring all the spicy takes this week, right? Yeah, that's what I like to do. I like to keep it on the two opposite ends, like extremely boring and then extremely spicy. So (laughs) hopefully you'll either be entertained, aggravated, but nowhere in in the middle. I was going to say your post from what, two weeks ago on the Action Mailer stuff was solid. If anybody hasn't read that, I'll put a link in the notes, but Those are a lot of things that I've done and same thing, I think, is why you posted it because it's like a lot of these little pro tips here are just not talked about enough and I appreciate the blog post on it. Lately, when I've been working on stuff, I've been trying to like step back a little bit when I start building features and just like double check some assumptions that I've made because I've been doing Rails since the Rails 2 era and when there's new features and stuff like you just don't have time to catch up with everything or you're working in a code base that is on old versions or you have stuff in your code base that you thought was in the framework isn't in the framework or like vice versa. And (laughs) yeah, I was just like writing a bunch of email stuff and I was like, oh, this is going to be super annoying to build this feature. And then I just like stared at it for a while and I was like, I can't be the only one that has this issue. And then go back to the like original Rails guide and be like, oh, I've been doing mailers basically wrong since I learned the first time. Yeah, I started in two, 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 three or something. And you like learn the way to do it early on. And that works. And then new helpers and stuff get added, but not necessarily ones that you can use right away because your app might be a little bit out of date or whatever. And then you just keep going down that path and you're like, this is how I do it. I remember how I did it last time. And it's hard to like retrain yourself to pick up all the new tools, even though they can be really handy. Sometimes like the guides don't necessarily spell things out in a way that you would write it in your application. It's like, here's how this thing works. True. It's like, so this particular kind of aha moment with the mailer stuff was related to how you pass in params data to a mailer. And like it's documented, it's in the guides, but there's not an example that sort of fits what you would run across as like an application developer. Which makes sense. It's like kind of the difference between like writing library code and writing application code. And so I think there's a ton of stuff like that. It'll really be interesting to see too what, if anything, comes out of the like the Rails Foundation stuff. Cause I think that is where that could fit in mm-hmm. and like bridge the gap nicely is like not that they need to like rewrite the Rails guides. It's like what's the like glue between what should be documented in the framework versus like what are good practices as a like consumer of Rails? Yeah. I think a lot of those PRs too are code complete, but they're not like necessarily they'll add like a change log entry and stuff. And sometimes they'll update the Rails guides or whatever. But usually I think it isn't. We add maybe the authenticate by method and it's like, it actually feels like it would be a nice section to have in the Rails guides on here's authentication. But ideally you like 
do it in Rail 7.1 or something because there's a whole bunch of additional improvements around there. So it's like maybe they know that the authentication functionality isn't totally complete. So it's just going to wait on the Rails guides that are a little bit more tutorialized or whatever. But you can just dig into the docs if you're really trying to do it from scratch or whatever. But yeah, there's a fine line and I think it's hard to balance because there's just so much to it. Like active support by itself has so many methods and rails on top of that with active record and whatever. There's just a an enormous amount to keep up with. I think Chris, you like know firsthand it's like you've built a like million dollar business on bridging that gap. And so there's plenty of room yeah. to do that. For sure. So you were telling me that you had some spicy takes that we can go over. I thought if you got some, let's hear Yeah. It. What level of spice would you like to start off with? I want the spiciest thing you have. Like I'm with the ghost pepper. <laughs> the spiciest Carolina thing I Reaper. have in the next five years, we won't be using Git. Ooh, that's interesting. Why? There would need to be some yeah. replacing it in order for me to get behind that. Yeah. Anything beyond the 101, like 102 level Git stuff is just not worth it. And really, the only good thing about Git is branching. And so I think we're going to see a shift similar to what happened with switching from subversion to Git. I think we're going to see a new tool that just is like get the good parts that I think is going to take over. And I think it'll probably be some like terrible thing from like the JavaScript community that everyone hates. (laughs) It'll be like written in JavaScript or like it'll be written in Rust or something. And just eventually through pure force of will of JavaScript developers, it'll take over. And then I think it'll be more difficult, right, to supplant Git than it was for Subversion because of basically what GitHub and GitLab have done to centralize. But I think that's coming. That's my 10 million Scoville spicy hot take. Ooh, that's really interesting. It just seems like you're right. Like there's... So much that you can do with Git, but most actual like product teams just need branching and pretty much the basics. Are there other features that are like gonna fall apart on different size teams? I think any of the like advanced Git workflows just cause more problems than they're worth generally. And there are lots of neat features in Git. Like, and I know people that swear by things like Git bisect to be able to like track back through history and find where a bug was introduced or something. But it just feels like these are such like niche things that the high cost of like learning and the ability to like foot gun yourself with Git and like accidentally screw something up. And then I know you can go to the ref log and like get anything back at any time, but that's very difficult. Something else that's interesting is with a lot of the GitHub Copilot stuff, I think you'll be able to build something that can merge better than Git does right now. And so with a lot of these tools, like if you deconstruct it and tackle the problem fresh, Git was written for maintaining the Linux kernel. And I don't think a lot of projects are like that. So that's where I think there's like an opportunity for someone to like reimagine it. And then you just slap on that modern, fast JavaScript native aspect of it. And like, oh yeah, you can write plugins for this, or you can write custom workflows in JavaScript or something instead of Git has like pre-commit hooks and stuff, but they're all like shell scripts and I just think something is going to come along and take over Mindshare. I, for one, welcome that because I think small teams absolutely don't need the majority of those things. If you're working on GitHub itself, the Linux kernel, 
giant projects with giant teams, I bet you that can be beneficial to have all those things. But yeah, for the smaller teams, it would just be so much easier to have something that was simpler that, like you were saying, the Git merges is probably the biggest fear that most people have using Git. I don't want to have to like, oh God, these two different lines of code are right here. Why were they changed? And there's really no context, which is what you want to see around it. And VS Code or whatever can say like, here's your changes. Partially the wording's awful when you like read the raw stuff, but it's nice when they're like, here's your changes, here's theirs. Which one do you want? But it's also like, you need to know your changes were here from this commit and this was what we were trying to do then. And now it's changed and this is what we're trying to do now. And it doesn't really give you any context. And having that would just make it so much easier to reason about. So I would love to see stuff like that improve. I think if I hedge my bets a little bit, it's like maybe Git will still be there, but there's going to be like another layer on top of that, whether that's Hmm. something Mm -hmm. like how like the terminal has kind of moved into being just like an integrated like pane in VS Code. Maybe there's something like that where it's just completely abstracted and you don't necessarily know that under the hood it is using, it's using Git. Yeah. Which would be nice because then you would get the best of both worlds where you have the abstracted layer. But if you ever did need to do something more complex or whatever, you've got the ability to do that and the compatibility with deploying to Heroku or whatever services already assume that Git is what you're using. If you were to reinvent this from scratch, within five years, try and get reasonable adoption on software tools, it's probably going to be very, very hard, I would imagine. So like, it does make sense. An abstraction layer would be able to accomplish that goal. You could almost take it from the platform and go that way. Imagine that like you're like Vercel or like one of these serverless platforms and you're suddenly just like, oh yeah, like the official way to deploy is through this abstraction layer over Git and this is how you manage your changes. I don't really know too much about planet scale, but my assumption is that it kind of works like that where it's like you have databases under the hood, but you have this other layer of commands for branching and migrating and stuff. So I think it's very clear to see that someone will try to like surplant Git and it might come from a platform level instead of from a project level. And that's a pretty good take. I like it. What's spicy take number two? What's the spice level, Andrew? Maximum hot. I want spice, man. I don't want these lame takes. Not that you, I'm making, you haven't said any making lame too takes, much sense. Yeah. yeah, I need some controversial. I need something I can clickbait. So I think that contributing to open source is terrible advice for new programmers. All right. I can get behind that to a degree. I don't think it's wrong to aspire and to try. I do think that saying, hey, just work on open source without any sort of guidance or anything is not helpful. Now, if you are a project maintainer and you're like telling a junior, hey, you can get better at programming by working on open source, you can work with me on my open source and you work together with that person. That's very different. But yeah, just blindly telling someone on Twitter, like, hey, want to get better as a programmer? Work on open source. That's how you get a job. That's, yeah, that's categorically false. And it's usually just like a bullet point in the list of like things to do of like, do a boot camp, do personal projects, contribute to open source. I think there's a lot of moralizing that happens with open source of like, it is seen as like a universal good that you like must contribute. And I think that's a whole separate discussion. But like, I think it's unfair to like also throw that on people that are getting started in the industry. 
And I think there's just like a couple characteristics of open source that just make it bad for new programmers in general. Not to say that you can't have good experience. And I'm sure there's people that are, you know, gearing up to tweet at me about how when I was learning to program, it was fundamental that I contributed to this big project. But a lot of open source code is library code. It's not application code, but 95% of programming jobs are writing application code. A lot of open source projects require advanced skills like thinking about backwards compatibility, being able to like imagine use cases outside of your own because you're creating something that other people are going to consume versus for a lot of new programmers, it's like, hey, this is a very specific thing that you are trying to get done. And basically, I think with a handful of exceptions, most open source projects are just extremely poorly managed software projects. So there's not anything like a product manager or the you know ticket tracking systems don't look like the ticket tracking systems you're going to use in a professional context. And all to say, like, it's not the optimal or ideal way of like getting experience. Now, would you say maybe not contributing, but like actively maybe even following or reading along? I think there's value in seeing how open source works and seeing how people work. Like, I think there's a lot more you can pull out of open source than being better at coding, like Mm -hmm. the communication and the back and forth and those other things you talk about, like the backwards compatibility and thinking about this. And I think those are all really great things to think about and maybe even new problems to expose yourself to. I don't know if you should try to solve them. I think all these things are like valuable, but like when you're new in the industry, you have to be ruthless, I think, about prioritizing like where you're spending your time and trying to do things that are the highest leverage. For a lot of people, if you don't see some level of success pretty early, that can be super discouraging. Like we risk turning these people out of the industry. Yeah, for sure. There's a ton of like really awesome things in open source. And there are definitely things that you can learn from open source projects that you might not get exposed to in a corporate environment. I just think those skills are like later down the line. Even things like Hmm. being willing to go upstream, like, hey, there's a problem. I need to like make a fix. I'm not just going to patch in my app. I'm going to like go upstream and solve this probably like the quote unquote correct place to solve it. That's a hugely beneficial skill. And to me, that's like a really high signal activity of somebody that understands programming and understands more deeply like how all these pieces connect. But I'm not asking that of somebody who's still trying to get their bearings in the software world. From my experience, because I did a lot of open source when I was learning, but it was not me contributing to other projects. I was building stuff that was open. And then that attracted like other people to work on it with me. So I ended up getting that collaborative experience, but it wasn't like, we're not going to fix a bug in this library or whatever. We're like building our own little app and communicating with each other on like, oh, we should do this feature, but how's that going to work? And then it was a lot of good experience for me at the time because I didn't have a job yet as a programmer. So I was getting some of that day-to-day experience. It was just kind of more with friends and other acquaintances online. I would basically try to build stuff and then get people to use it so I could get feedback and improve it and just kind of simulate what having a job would be like using the open source umbrella or whatever. But it was like, I didn't really expect anybody to use the stuff. It just helped me 
learn by having it open. Yeah. And maybe it's like nitpicking on the wording, but like I wouldn't even call that open source. I would say that's just more like sharing your work. If I could like rewrite those tweets, it wouldn't say like new developers contribute to open source. I think I would have it say like show your work. And that could be like that you are building your own thing and putting it on GitHub where it is open. I don't consider that. And I don't think that's what people generally mean when they say open source, an open source project or like contributing to open source. It's just the source happens to be open. I agree that that's like the connotation of like when I'm saying, oh, yeah, I'm working on open source. Your first thought maybe is like, oh, you're making a PR to Chris's notice gem or something. But it is still open source to just put your toy projects like source is still open. People can still learn from that. You can still come back to that and like improve it. You can turn it into something bigger. Maybe it's only for you at the very beginning. It's still open source by putting it on GitHub and like making mm-hmm. the source available. Yeah, I think it's just like a branding issue. We need to brand that differently. There needs yeah. to be like, show your work and like contribute upstream or something or join a distributed software project. And it's like, oh yeah, like you wouldn't tell a new person to join a distributed asynchronous long-running software project, but you would tell them to like show their work because not only is it going to help them learn, it helps them demonstrate where their abilities at. It helps people give them help. So I think that's what we need to do is rebrand. Yeah, I agree with that. To show that I'm not just like a total hater, like I do want to highlight that I think there are two projects specifically for people learning Ruby and Rails that I think are actually open source projects that are not so poorly run that they do actually simulate real work. And that's the umbrella of the Ruby for Good project that has several open source apps. And I know that they actually have people who their contribution to that is like writing user stories and tickets. And because you are building an open source Rails app, you're not building like a gem to use in a Rails app. I think it's a lot closer. The other one is, I think it's called Forum, F-O-R-E-M project, which is the tool that runs the Dev.2 blogging social network thing. And I know that's another project where if you go in They have product managers that are like writing tickets. And then they also do a good job of actually assigning tasks to people. A lot of times in like open source, there's just bugs and issues and they're not assigned to anybody. And you don't really know like, should I assign this to myself? Is someone else working on this? So I'd say those are two projects that are going to be more representative of what a working software developer does. Yeah, that's a really good point. Definitely recommend those. When I was in college, my senior year, I was trying to build a Rails app for our senior project. And like, you can, for some of those more complex projects, if you run into a bug, I would do what I did again, which was I ran into some like bug in active record on a group by that seemed like it wasn't working right. And I opened an issue on the Rails repo and basically was like, hey, I think this is wrong. I'm pretty sure it should do this. And I would be happy to contribute a fix to this, but I just need somebody to give me confirmation like, yes, this is wrong. And how would you start to solve this? And on a project like that, hopefully you'll find, because it's a bigger project, the maintainers will be keeping an eye on it and they will sort of guide you along with that. You know, if you're like trying to find bugs in things, good luck. It's way too challenging for a beginner to like dig into finding bugs and rails or devise. If I'm working with a newer developer, like I don't want to give them a bug. Yeah. Uh, I think bugs are harder than new features. 
you have yeah. to usually understand more context. And a lot of times it's like, well, if it's a bug, then it wasn't immediately obvious like why this is happening. I'm not trying to intentionally write a bug. So there must be something non-obvious or unexpected that's happened. Overall, there's plenty of places that you can get the advice to like do open source. And like I said, that may be a path that works for people. And that's why these are like unpopular opinions. Because like you can hear the popular opinion of do open source. And I'm sure it does work for some people. The thing that I like about giving unpopular opinions is that it sort of gives permission to people that they don't have to necessarily follow that if it's not working for them. So like if you're a new programmer and like the reason you got into programming was because you started working on an open source project or something, like I'm not saying you're doing it wrong. It reminds me a little bit of when DHH wrote his like debt jubilee post around Rails of like, hey, you don't owe Rails anything if you're using it. And I think that's just like a different attitude than the prevailing attitude around open source. That is not wrong that like it's sort of unfair that like everyone is building these businesses off the backs of small sure. people. But for an individual person who's like trying to get into the industry, I think it's good to sometimes tell people or like give them an example that they like they don't have to do that. Somebody with like whatever amount of authority or influence I have in like the Rails community is saying like you don't have to do this. It's fine. Probably most things, the advice that you see commonly given that it's repeated all over is probably always take it with a grain of salt. These are very generic things that people are saying these days. You don't have to follow all this like generic advice everybody repeats. I remember trying to figure out that advice. I want to be a programmer and I want to learn testing. Everybody says I have to learn testing. And it's like, you don't have to, but the benefit of testing is to help you write code that is robust and reliable and doesn't break. But you can still pay attention to every time Honey Badger sends you an email, go fix that. You can still learn to write reliable code without that. So like the advice of you have to learn testing immediately and TDD everything. And not true. There's many ways to tackle those things. I just want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Honey Badger. They are not only my favorite error and uptime monitoring service, but they've also added several awesome new features, one of those being the public status pages. So it makes perfect sense that your error and uptime monitoring tool can have a public status page for you to communicate any downtime outages with your customers. So whether US East 1 is down or you forgot to add a configuration file, Honey Badger is there for you to help communicate any downtime or outages with your customers. Plus, they've also added SSL certificate monitoring. So like many of us use these days, Let's Encrypt certificates expire every 90 days. And if for some reason you're a week away from expiring an SSL certificate, they can let you know ahead of time so that you can take care of it without any outages for your customers. Plus, managing the errors and things inside of Honey Badger has gotten even easier with Honey Badger Actions which you can use to automatically assign errors to yourself or another team member, add tags to different error classes and more. And they also have batch actions, which you can use on the search results to help manage your backlog of work to do. So Honey Badger is the place to check out for error and uptime monitoring, and it's only getting better. So check them out at honeybadger.io. Writing good code is hard and like writing good tests is harder than writing good code. It's just a matter of like prioritizing. 
of course, you will want to learn how to like write tests and automated testing, and there are absolutely benefits of it. It's just a matter of like sequencing. Do you need to learn that like, you know, month three, or can you do that like month 24 of your like exactly. journey? Probably being able to actually build features. That's probably the thing to focus on the most because then you as a developer can get a job and they can actually make money off of you, which means they want to hire you and keep you around because you're beneficial to the team. But if you're like struggling to ship features that actually get to customers, then you're not going to be that helpful to the company. And I think as a junior, how do I help the team accomplish the goals might give you some perspective on, or at least a a way to answer some of those questions. Do I need to learn this right now or whatever? You can maybe use some questions like that to kind of decide what to focus on. I came across somewhat recently a quote from Kent Beck, who is like a pioneer of code quality and software design and all this stuff. And I remember there was a post that he had basically made at some point that was basically, I don't get paid to write tests. And I think that ruffled a lot of people's feathers and like, oh, I get paid to write code. And then people will say, well, yeah, but like I would never feel comfortable writing code without tests. And it's interesting to think through some of that. For sure. And it's one of those where it's like, customers won't pay us if the feature doesn't work and we first need to make it work. But then if it's buggy and unreliable, then yes, it becomes very valuable to write tests because now this feature is set in stone. The people expect it to work and it worked the way it's intended. And you might first build it, figure out how it's supposed to work, and then realize, okay, we're good. We know what needs to happen, but it's buggy. Let's polish it up. A lot of these things too have different importance at different scales of speed. So a reason that testing and automated tests are important is that they give you a quick feedback loop. And if you are very experienced and you're very familiar with the code base and tools, you want that feedback as fast as possible. So you want to be able to run a test and like within a second, get back whether it's working or not. But when you're starting out, you're just slower and that's fine. But you can get the same kind of feedback from like alt tabbing to the browser, clicking refresh, filling out the form, clicking submit, and then like seeing if it works or not. And like, yeah, that's going to take two minutes instead of 200 milliseconds. But like you're not moving that quickly anyways. And I have similar thoughts about like Vim and other tooling of like, yeah, people like Vim because it eliminates the amount of time between like thinking and like getting the code down because they want to move fast. But like their thought patterns are just so much faster than somebody that is getting started where they might have to think, they might have to like between each line of code, really pause and like write it out or like look up documentation or draw a diagram. And it's like, it doesn't really matter that they're like being hyper efficient at like producing characters on the screen. That's another one where, yep. like, sure, like Vim is helpful, but like it's useless and probably harmful, I think, to start there. Yeah, I don't think I picked up Vim until, oh, I don't know, three or four years into programming. It was probably after I graduated college and I had been programming all through since grade school or whatever. And it, I remember being at a point where I had my coworker sitting there and he's like highlighting HTML and using his mouse. And it's just like, I'm watching him so slowly switch between these things. That was one of the times where I realized my brain is going 
faster because I know exactly what to do. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, I need to start trying out Vim to see. And I know it'll be slower at first, which is really frustrating. But if I can get that performance between my brain and what I want to see on the screen, then that will help a lot. And for me, it was really just first step was learn keyboard shortcuts for, oh, what was it? I don't, Sublime, I think I was using at the time. And it's like, just don't touch the mouse. And that was step one was just learn the keyboard shortcuts, whatever editor you're on. Good. Use that. Saves you a bunch of time. Then at a certain point, you might want to go to Vim to do some crazier stuff faster, but probably any editor is going to have more keyboard shortcuts than you realize to actually just, you know, eliminate a lot of that friction between your thoughts. You know, that adage that's like the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the second best time is, is today. For me, it's like the best time to learn Vim was 20 years ago and the second best time to learn Vim is never. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just don't bother. That's your spicy take. Yeah. Yeah. As a Vim user, I mean, I understand it. I like it. Those are good spicy takes. How are features and things prioritized? Because I feel like anytime you're building a product, there are just enormous amounts of feedback given like, oh, this has a little, a typo or a, a little bug here on a very obscure edge case. And like, you write it down and you know you need to fix it. But there's also like, we have, goals to grow the product features in these areas, but we also need to maintain these things. And then there's like nice to have fixes and whatever else. There's a lot of different layers of those things. Like how do you guys prioritize that stuff? I can give like an overall sense. So much of it depends on the context of your business. And I'm sure it's the same for you. Like if I were to flip it around on you and say like, how do you prioritize what's topics you're covering, you're going to have a certain set of criteria. For us, like the stage that our company is at, like we're still in the early growth stage. So it's really like money talks. So things that were like raised in the sales conversations with the customer that's like, oh, this is a blocker if we can't have this or, oh, like they asked about it and we didn't feel good about the answer. Hey, can you do this? And it's like, well, we can't really do that. And like those like feel particularly bad because when you're still trying to get to a stage where the company is going to like be self-sustaining, it's very clear of like, yep, if we keep having to answer these things with, yeah, you can't really do that, but it's coming. Eventually, you're just going to like run out of customers. And same thing for like, oh, yeah, this customer is our largest account. So I think people like to say like, you should let your customers dictate it. But it's like, there is some tension. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you're solving problems for your customer. It's really like, don't let the customers dictate the specific features, but like you should definitely be listening to what their problems are. I think a good example of that recently we had is we had customers that were unhappy that a feature we ended up building was like a white labeling solution for the app where you could run it on your own domain and have emails come from your own domain. No customers were specifically asking for that, but what they were saying was like, hey, we're not sure that we're going to be able to go with the solution because we think it's going to be confusing to our customers if they're seeing links and like logging into this other app. If you're like, if you're GoRails and you're sending something to your customer and in the middle of the process, you're not sending them links that are like on the GoRails domain. They're like, wait a second, what is happening here? What's this other service? Do I have to have an account for that? How does that all work? That was the problem. 
customers were having. And they weren't necessarily, I mean, some people are savvy enough to know like, yeah, like we need custom domain support, but it didn't necessarily dictate how we solved that or how we implemented it or any of that. But it was like, here's the problem. And that's how we prioritize features. Yeah. Just thinking in general of like building products is like, you have these customers and some of them are demanding specific features and things. And you have to draw the line of, am I consulting for this specific customer or are we building Mm -hmm. our business? And you have to balance those where sometimes you're like, well, to keep this customer, we might have to build this feature nobody else is going to use. And it's a trade-off of deciding whether or not you prioritize that or build it at all. And you want to still, at the end of the day, do what's best for your business. And in general, things that are going to benefit most of your customers, if possible. Yeah, I was just thinking about all that stuff. Custom domains are an interesting one. Has that been set up? Are you using like Caddy or anything for that? No, we actually are just using like Heroku feature where you can add custom domains. Directly to the, to respond to, yeah. Yep, we basically call the platform API and register people's domains and then we send them instructions for all the DNS records and then once those are verified, then they can start serving the app that way and then we store that and can redirect and make sure that all like URL generation has the right host names. We sort of waffled on this feature for a while because we didn't know how we really wanted to set it up. And there was a certain analysis paralysis of, well, is this really the right way? Like, what if we want to move hosts? What if there's a limit? I don't know how firm it is on Heroku, but like you can only have a thousand custom domains per project. And then we kind of waffled around. And then ultimately it was like, this is more like an enterprise level feature anyways. And so if we're at the point where we have a thousand and one people on high tiered plans, then that means like the company will be super successful so we can do the migration at that point. When you get to 500, you'll know like, oh no, we need to start working on an alternative to this. And then it's like, maybe the 501st customer ends up on your new system and you then just have to transfer the old ones across. And I think that's an interesting thing about like, I assume there's there's a lot of projects or a lot of features that have like been built, but you pivoted and maybe those don't need to be around anymore. And legacy things kind of hopefully removed, but how has that worked out? Just like an example is we've basically rebuilt like the core loop of the app. We're on like the fourth iteration of it. So a lot of the concepts have been solid, like in the domain concept. I mean, the product that we work on creates onboarding plans for the customers. You have an onboarding plan and there's phases and there's tasks and tasks can be assigned and tasks have due dates. And a lot of that stuff hasn't changed, but like a lot of the flows and interactions have changed. And one example, something I worked on a lot last year was a version of this that had it was fully customizable. You could drag and drop different content blocks and it was almost like a website builder to make this plan. Oh yeah. Uh, and like ultimately that wasn't it. It work as well as we wanted it to with customers. And something I had done with like when we were building it was like, we really need to like write tests for this because there's basically like no test for the whole version of it that was this content editable system. It was fine and it ended up that like we rewrote it anyways. So I would have felt even worse if we had made this huge test suite. So yeah, I was like, oh yeah, like I had a to-do that was like, yep, we need to write like system tests to like exercise the basic functionality of this. And the to-do was removed, but it wasn't like going back to write the test. It was like, well, we're deleting the whole thing. 
there's a surprising amount of like legacy stuff that you have to support too, especially when you're very early. It's hard to like drop some of those like anchor customers when you're just getting started. And so we definitely have done that and cut off features that don't work anymore. But yeah, especially when you have a small team too. Something that's always in our cool down project for like tech deck cleanup and stuff that I try to do, like if I have a spare hour on Friday is we still have a bunch of V2, V3 like routes where we were building the next version of a thing at the same time and we haven't quite finished it and figured out the migration plan. There's some controllers that are still in like a V2 namespace that like eventually need to get moved back over. That feels good when you finally get to like clean some of that up. I like having those around, but I think people sometimes they think that like legacy code and that stuff only happens in like long, big projects. And it can also happen in new code bases where you're just moving quickly, but not wanting to like throw your customer trust away. We have some customers and it's like ultimately like in two years, they're not going to be crucial to the success of the product. But you have to like understand that you're asking people to do a lot to like integrate with your product, especially in the area that we're in where either they're putting our work in front of their customers. And so it needs to have a certain quality and we don't want to like leave them hanging. If, if they spend 12 weeks setting up a new like onboarding program and then suddenly we're like, oh yeah, like never mind. Actually, we're not going to support this thing anymore. We don't want to be burning trust that way because in a lot of these places too like it's a small industry and it's like oh yeah like we had a terrible experience with this service because they mm-hmm. like completely shut down this stuff and we do have to do that sometimes and we try to like give people notice and for instance when we moved between these like major versions we said hey we're migrating to this new thing here's what will be the same here's what will be different we're doing our best to make sure you're not like losing any data we're going to forcibly migrate everything in like 30 days if you want to migrate now, like click this button and you can like get your account upgraded into the new thing. So on Hatchbox, I've learned so much building the first version, but there was so many little things that you start and you're like, oh, I'm going to make this simple. And if you do that and don't think far enough ahead, for example, not building team support was mm-hmm. one of them. All of a sudden, you start getting a ton of requests as people start using it that, hey, I need to work with my teammates. And you're like, "Uh uh-oh, this is not good. We had enough of those stack up that I decided that a new version, we would just start from scratch, build it on Jumpstart and have all these features. And we can focus on the actual server configuration and management stuff instead. But it's interesting because like, I tried to do sort of the base camp. We'll keep the old version running and we'll keep maintaining that and stuff. Anybody who's using that can keep paying for it. They're not forced mm-hmm. to upgrade. But I've run into an interesting thing that, you know, new server versions come out. We actually have to make a bunch of changes to even support that because the latest Ubuntu LTS only comes with OpenSSL 3, which means you got to go do a bunch of workarounds for older Ruby versions to support that stuff. It also like doesn't out of the box support SSH RSA keys. So you got to go like now generate different SSH key formats. And then Mm -hmm. it just becomes like a sort of landslide of things. We're using like the Redis repository that some guy was just maintaining himself to like provide the latest versions. Well, he stopped doing that a long time ago. So we've run into a bunch of little things where like, I'd like to continue maintaining this and offering 
Hatchbox Classic to everyone who wants to keep using it. I don't want to force you to move your app and your database and your DNS over. That's non-trivial work, but it's been an interesting one of every day it gets harder and harder to support that stuff. It's really just tough because you have to balance making value for your customers that are on the new stuff versus like if you cut off all the old customers, you're really burning a lot of customer goodwill. And then people will be like, oh, well, like if I'm on the new one and then I'm on V2 and like Hatchbox V3 comes out, like am I just going to get thrown to the wayside again? And it's not not an easy process. I'm afraid there's going to be a day where it will be so costly for me to go continue updating Hatchbox Classic that I'll have to tell people they have to upgrade, Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate because I don't want to do that at all. But it's like we have people on Ubuntu 16.04 and did that expire security updates two years ago? Those are annoying to me where it's like a business move, not an engineering problem that they're hoping to avoid or can't really deal with. I think you should probably, and you probably do think about it this way, but like if video hosting is like such a core piece of GoRails, it is basically the core of your product. So I think you either have to be prepared to spend a lot into your margins on that because it is so core, or you have to like be ready to like bring it in house and say that this is so critical that like I need full control over it. That's been exactly the trade-offs that I've gone through for so long where originally like we used Vimeo, but Vimeo, their player was awful. So it was like Mm. every week somebody would be like, Hey, I can't play the videos that I paid for. And it's Vimeo's player's fault. And that was like the old Vimeo player. So I switched to Wistia and self-hosting videos and stuff is definitely doable or whatever. But Wistia was like a very nice player. They had analytics. You could add these features Mm -hmm. of like, you watch 30 seconds and then you have to put your email in to continue watching. Those things I was like, oh, this could be great for collecting email addresses and building my business and newsletter and whatever. Turns out I never used hardly any of that stuff Mm -hmm. and I just kept paying them. And that was fine because it was like frictionless. But now if you're going to double the price on me, I'm going to look for alternatives. And now I'm like, okay, if they know that it's that important to me, then they're going to squeeze me for it. It's time to bring it in house. So I was actually looking at Cloudflare Streams, a really good option. Bunny CDN has a streaming option as well for video. Mux is cool, but they charge you for transcoding and everything where Cloudflare and Bunny somehow like eat that cost, which is impressive. But the awful thing that I find exceedingly frustrating is as far as I remember, like Cloudflare Stream doesn't keep, they may now, but they didn't originally keep your original video. So that meant you'd have to also back it up on S3 mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. just to be safe. And then literally everybody charges either by the minute or by gigabyte. And so you don't really know what you're going to pay for. And you can kind of go off what you're doing right now. But my stuff on Wistia is by gigabyte, but I don't know how many minutes are being streamed. The gigs could be somebody streaming in 360p, 1080p. I have no idea. And I literally cannot compare the pricing between the different services. And I think they kind of do that intentionally. It's frustrating because you're like, Cloudflare is going to charge by minute, which means somebody's streaming on their phone at 360p. I'm paying the exact same as somebody streaming the full 1080p version. And I was doing some math, and I don't know if this is even remotely correct, but I might say like, five grand 
a year in hosting or more by switching over to Bunny CDN's streaming service. So trying that out and the next video on Monday that's coming out is going to be on that. We'll use their player and see if there's any complaints or whatever and give that a try. Because man, going from potentially having to pay double to like saving 5k a year would be a win in my book for sure. So yeah, it's like a sign that like, oh, I should have evaluated this long time ago. Engineers are just like notoriously bad at doing those calculations too. I yeah. Mean, yeah. We had a similar feature that we built in Arrows where we wanted people to have the ability to do embeds. And so you can go look and like, okay, there's gems and there's like the embed spec. If someone like pastes in a link to be able to yep, get like yep. either like a video thumbnail or if it's like a slideshow to get like a little slideshow preview thing or if it's a type form to have the, the form embedded. There's also an API that we pay for. It's called iFramely and it's $30 a month or something. And it's like, we would probably pay like $500 a month for this because you literally just pass it the URL and they'll go and like crawl the link and see what the OEmbed thing is supposed to be. And they have like a bunch of rules for common services of like, oh, if you paste a Calendly link, we know how to turn that into like an embedded scheduling thing, even if they don't properly support OEmbed. Yeah, it's one of those things where like, oh yeah, this feature could have taken, I don't know, like a couple of weeks and tons of ongoing maintenance work, or we just pay them like $30 a month and it's like taken care of for us. But there's so many trade-offs too. But now it's an external system. So if something doesn't work, we have to either send support tickets there and like we're playing telephone with like, yeah, our customer's trying to paste in this link and it doesn't really work. And we don't want to like eject and like have some things that are we're going to manually handle because at that point you're better off fully. Right. But it's just a good example of like, someone would be like, yeah, there's like the OEmbed spec. Why would I pay like 30 or 50 or $200 a month for this service? And it's like, well, we gladly would pay that because we just don't have time. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like there's a difference between there are sort of engineers that are product focused and then there are engineers that just enjoy the programming algorithms and performance and other things, but don't necessarily think about what's the cost of us building this feature or integrating how, how with some we, other how system. How do we migrate and, existing customers? What's the rollout plan? Yeah. Uh, what's the risk of this feature? Is this something that I should turn on right away? Or would a salesperson be surprised if they're in the middle of a demo and they refresh the page and like the entire UI is different? Like how's that gonna <laughs> how's yeah. that gonna work? Yeah. A lot of people talk about unicorn full stack developer that's like good at like the front and the back end, but I think it's like In our experience, it's been challenging finding people that are both able to be like customer centric, but also think about the quality of the work too. Like, I think you can find people that are very customer focused or come from more of like an entrepreneurial background where it's like, let's get it working. Like, yeah, the customer needs this. Like, I'll just hack it in there. That also like doesn't work long term because you'll then sort of back yourself into a corner or run into cases where things are breaking and it was good at the beginning. So that's like where I feel like I'm good at. And like, that's where we're looking for, always looking for more people. So if that feels like it's your type of unicorn and not the like, hey, I can, you know, be a designer and a developer type thing, definitely reach out. We are, you know, shameless plug. We are hiring people for that kind of product engineer role at Arrows. Yeah, I will put a link to the job posting in the show notes. 
in case anybody wants to, but like you were saying, the entrepreneurial, we can put that together in an hour and we'll ship it. It's not that you're looking for, it's that they can do that, but keep in mind the long term of if we have to ship this, we also are agreeing to maintaining this for a long time. So let's not just hack together something. Let's take yeah. a little extra it's... time to plan for what will need to change in the future. Or what can we imagine? This is the prototype, but yet we know we're going to have to add these other things if it works. I call plan. it scrappy, not crappy. We have to be super pragmatic about what we build, but when we choose to build something, like we can't build a crappy version because we likely won't have time to like go back and fix it if it's causing problems. And if it's causing too many problems, like we might have to just like cut it out completely. So yeah, uh, there's a ton of stuff that we've had to build like that. One that I shared somewhat recently on Twitter was we have a thing where you can build like a mini form uh, inside of an onboarding plan. And so let's say you want people to fill out a field that's like, what state are you in? And you want it to be a dropdown with all the states. So we were trying to build this feature. And if you've built like a form builder code like this, at some point you're like, maybe we have to do like a has many like form options. And you're going to have a separate database table where you're storing all the options. And what we ended up shipping and building that was a much simpler version, but works well, was just text area. And you paste in all your options and like one per line. And then when we go to save it to the database, we just do like options dot split new line. And those are your options. And so like you might think like, well, this is just kind of crappy version. But I think it's not actually like a crappy version would be you have like a has many with like a dynamic form, but you don't support reordering or copy paste. Are you going to build all that into it? Like, are you going to build a keyboard listener that when you paste in text does that? And like, if people want to make a list of states, are you going to build like a bulk importer so that you can import 50 lines? Or are they going to have to type in text field, like click new, like wait for the page to reload? And so like, that's just, a, I think the most clear example of that's a scrappy feature where we do that. And like, it works, it actually works well and it works a lot better than most versions of like doing it right. Now, if you do it, completely correctly. If you build the super great version natively, yeah, it's going to be better, but it was just too much effort for that. So that's the kind of stuff that we have to deal with on the daily. And I don't know, it's like interesting to talk about this because it's, you really don't hear that much about these type of trade-offs. Like people always talk about how engineering is all about trade-offs, but usually they're like, you have to trade off like memory for performance or readability <laughs> for right. performance. Like, no, it's, do we build a version of this that we can build in a couple days or do we build a version that takes a couple of weeks or do we build a version that takes a couple of months? Yeah. Which reminds me of that the little graphic of building a product and it's like, you don't want to build your end goal might be building a car. Skateboard yeah. car. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like picture of like, you might think that you need to like prototype the entire car, but it doesn't have wheels or a steering wheel or interior or anything. But like, that's not actually useful for everybody. So starting with like a skateboard and it gets you there, it helps some people, but maybe not everyone. And then you like work your way up to a car. It's the same concept of like, it's very functional. Those little things are scrappier. They're very flexible, which it's a simple model, but it is so flexible because of the simplicity that you can do a lot with it. And you haven't put too much structure in, which I think is often times the issue is like, oh, we're developers. 
ideally we're modeling the world and it's perfect. But I can tell you, like, just think about crypto. The reason credit card companies exist and are very big is because they deal with fraud and can actually refund your money when it gets stolen. But when your crypto gets stolen, you're screwed. Those things are like trying to model the world perfectly as if there were no bad actors and we just had this magical form of currency. But reality is life is way too complicated for that stuff. And you need to be able to actually like build things that can handle that. The way that I often think about it is like, if the code feels too rigid, it's a sign that we're working ourselves into a corner and it's like just becoming permanent. It's like we're setting it in stone. It's like concrete and it's like, chances are this is going to change. And so that's probably not what we want until maybe five years later. And we're like, this thing hasn't changed forever. We're fine with it staying that way for a long time. Just keep running into these examples, but we're getting to the point where we're starting to add features that are like gated by different plans, right? So if if you're on the starter plan, you don't get like the custom domain feature that we talked about. You need to be on a certain like dollar per month plan. And I think like a programmer that's trying to model the world naturally would say like, oh, like we should figure out some way of like tying this to our Stripe plan, right? So that like if you have the enterprise plan, then you get access to this feature. And I think what you'll learn over time is there are so many exceptions that happen, whether that's a salesperson negotiates, hey, we'll throw in this extra. We'll give you like half of the features on the premium plan if you like will sign today on this other plan. Or you just are changing your pricing, you're reworking how things go, you want to comp an account. I think you talked recently about like a comp account thing. Yeah, yeah, because... So what we could have built was like a mapping between features and Stripe like plan IDs. But instead, what we built was an array on the account where you can just shovel in keys for what features are enabled. And then if you still want to do some automatic stuff based on the Stripe plans, like in your like Stripe webhook, when you process it, you can say set features for plan that can add them. But then someone can also go into the console and just tack on the plan. Or we have like a crappy like admin dashboard with a bunch of checkboxes and they can yep. it's just like the Rails then, collection checkbox thing that gets mapped to a Postgres like array column and they just check which ones yeah. they want. And then we're off to the races. And you've accidentally built beta testing for feature flags in there too, because yeah. it's like, oh, maybe this one customer could use this new feature, but it's not ready for everybody. So just hop in the console and add that one-off thing to them and you're good to go. And it's like, it's a great example of that because it seems too simple, but it's like wonderfully flexible. And that is why it works so well. You don't know exactly how it's going to work forever. You're not at a point where it's like, well, hell, even the giant companies are changing things all the time. We're doing an experiment where we're moving this feature from this tier to this tier to see if it gets people to upgrade. And it's like, oh, like if you just have the equivalent of a big case statement about what plans have this and you have to coordinate of who's making the plan in Stripe and updating the marketing site and doing all this versus, oh, this customer needs to get this thing, just turn it on and then it's good. You can't break it by renaming the Stripe plan or you're not like taking away things. Hey, if somebody used to get this as part of the basic plan, but now it's on the pro plan, you probably want to leave it on there. But you're sort of decoupling that knowledge of like how features are gated from the knowledge of like what are the current prices in Stripe. Right. Because then you have to have 
the basic legacy plan number one and the basic legacy plan number two and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, why do we now have to manage this nightmare of things when we could have just shoveled the features right on the model there? The thing that I used to do was like, oh, it's simpler. I don't have to add another model attribute. I don't have to add another migration for this column and whatever. So I'll just like make the case statement. But then if I ever need to change it, I got to modify the code or it's more brittle like that because now you've got to have these multiple legacy plans or whatever that are effectively the same. And uh, sort of like going too simple and saying, oh, we're not going to have like an attribute for this is not a good answer or not a good reason for it's not really simplicity. It seems like it is. We just talked to Derek Sivers and he was telling us how he tries when he's writing his Ruby code to put as much logic and functions in Postgres. So he's like, all of this logic and the functions live in the database next to the data. So my Ruby code doesn't have hardly any dependencies. It's the original microservice, right? It's basically building microservices, but inside your database. So instead of a network call, it's within a like database connection call, which is both cool and also like extremely triggering to me as someone who (laughs) like started their career in web development working on a product that had like an Oracle database with so many stored procedures. Ooh. Yeah, it's... Yeah, that sounds interesting. I remember in that project, in Oracle, you could basically recompile each individual stored procedure. And this was also the time when like, you didn't actually want to install Oracle on your computer. So it was like, we had a team of like 10 developers and we were all using like a shared development Oracle (laughs) instance. And so we had a chat room and you'd have to be like, hey, I'm migrating this function because if anybody had a connection open to it or called that, it was going to like mess up. So you had to be like migrating and then you'd like go like <laughs> paste it in and then be like, okay, I'm done. That sounds like the replacement for Git you were talking about earlier, right? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Things you'll really appreciate about Rails working in other languages is like the migration system where the timestamp is in the file name. And so it just like make sure and there's like a metadata table to make sure that you run things once, but definitely I've been on a project where there was a Google sheet that had the migrations and like all the environments and there was like a little checkbox. And so you would have to go and like run the script on the server and then like mark that that was done. And yeah, it's wild out there. It is the wild west sometimes. I feel like some things have improved like that where there's enough talk about migrations and there's a lot, enough knowledge being discussed of uh, good practices like that these days that Mm. hopefully you pick that up earlier and don't have to deal with some of those. It's definitely a bubble that we're in. I'd say 95% of programmers don't listen to podcasts. 97% of programmers are like not on Twitter reading blog posts. So I think people sometimes have a warped perception of what, what reality is. And if you go out and you're working at some just random company on a random project, I've worked for clients where people have left because they were like, I'm too old and too experienced to like teach this company about using version control. It's not like a battle worth fighting for me to like do it here because right. it wasn't like a given. It was like actually required a lot of like organizational change and like negotiating and navigating like the political hierarchy to like add version control. Something that if you're on Twitter or like have read a programming book for fun in your lifetime, you're just like, well, that's so bizarre. Like, I can't imagine not doing it. Oh, man. 
I'm glad we don't have to deal with that these days. Well, we've been on for a while. Any last spicy takes that you want to throw out there before we leave? Maybe I'll just tease some of these and then if we want to do a follow-up, we can get into it. That'd be Um, fun. I tweeted this recently, but the best job for new developers is working in person, not remote, at a project-based consultancy, and you should ignore what the tech stack is. So even if you love Ruby and are looking for your first Ruby job, you should not look for Ruby jobs. You should go find some other job. I'll just leave it at that. That'll be the teaser for that one. I learned Python and Ruby and Rails in school, but I took my first job as a Perl developer. Interesting. I also did some Perl. My first project was Perl and uh, let's see, was it ASP.net? Not Uh the good .NET. Like .NET is actually pretty good now, but like the bad .NET. (laughs) I don't think I ever used ASP.net, but I remember that was pretty popular at the time. Yeah, I think the kind of spoiler for that one is it's like, I think remote work is great, but I feel like senior people, it's kind of like climbing up to the top of your treehouse and then like pulling the ladder up because a lot of people didn't build their expertise in a remote environment. And I think it's just way harder. So it's sort of like a harsh reality, but it's like unfair to people now that like, you're like, oh yeah, like remote's so great. It's like, well, you had the benefit of like working in person for seven to 10 years and now it's great. I would love to dig into that in a future episode. That is growingly spicy take, for yeah. sure. <laughs> I think OmniAuth is probably harmful to projects. Oh, interesting, because I just recorded a screencast this morning on OmniAuth, actually. <laughs> well, then you're doing harm to the world, Chris. Basically, oh. I find the bugs with OAuth are really tricky, and so I don't really want to be source diving into this other abstraction layer. Hey, we did that in the screencast this morning. <laughs> well, I don't want to be doing that. I so feel like maybe, I feel it. So maybe that's not that uh, unpopular of an opinion. I got one more on my list here if we want to hit it All right, quick. let's hear it. Rails controllers are actually service objects. So that's why you don't need service objects. Okay, interesting. So are you saying fat controllers? No, I don't think so. But I think a lot of the characteristics that people say are sort of virtuous about service objects are actually true of controllers and they just either want to have their own thing or like don't see it because they would rather not have like the input boundary be like an HTTP request. So like controllers and service objects, like they both have to deal with like parameters and parameter validations. They both have this like concept of like a clear input output boundary. They both have to handle basic control flow there's conventions on the controller for like what methods get called. Just like if you make service objects and you're like having some magic like call like to proc method, you're probably going to need like hooks for pre and post processing of data or side effects. And really, like, I think the answer is like, if you find yourself needing service objects, you should just write more controllers. I like that a lot. I feel like I've watched some of the DHH videos on writing software well, and I think Ryan Bates Railscast having like adding a search, advanced search controller, whatever it was. And it was like, don't stuff that in the original controller, make another controller for it. Now you have a place for all of your search things to go and extracting more controllers as their own concepts of the application. Well, I guess we should call it there. We'll have you back though. We got, I'm sure, many more spicy takes to dig into they may not be as spicy or at least to me i agree with you on so much of this stuff so it doesn't feel spicy i'll try to bring some even more (laughs) extreme things 
maybe I should bring things that I don't even agree with. And if you want to tell me all the things I got wrong, maybe my last unpopular opinion I'll leave you here with is that Twitter was and still is good and Mastodon and Ruby Social are bad. So you can but find Rails me... Rails apps. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at underscore Swanson. You can find my blog at boringrails.com. And if you are interested in working with me as a product engineer, we are hiring at my job where I am CTO at arrows.to and we'll have a link probably there to the job posting. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Uh, I love listening to Remote Ruby on Friday when it comes out. So looking forward to hearing myself rant in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, listening to yourself always feels, at least for me, always feels weird. So you'll get the fun of that. I'm a little narcissistic because <laughs> I'm always just like, yeah, that guy's making great points. Like, uh, <laughs> past me was really had it going. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, that's it for this episode, and we'll catch you in the next one. All right. Bye bye. Spicy.